On this week's episode of The Dan Cave, we'll look back at the Rams game and ahead to the Raiders in London and declare that yes, the Seahawks are smack dab in the middle of a playoff race and we'll tell you why you should get excited about that. And as the rest of baseball focuses on the league championship series, some clues start to shape up about which direction the Mariners will take this offseason. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. So last week, my primary point that I was trying to make was that the outcome against the Rams for the Seahawks was irrelevant. And I don't know if I was clear enough about what I meant, which was a huge loss to the Rams would have been irrelevant. A 42-7 drubbing like they experienced last December would have been irrelevant. And my point was, if you listened, that we, we can't be viewing the Rams right now as our primary rival. We're not in their league. They're the class of the NFC. We're not there yet. This is whatever we've chosen to call it, a resetting year getting ready for 2019 and beyond to contend. But I've said from the beginning of the season that the playoffs were possible if everything broke right for this team and if they grew and developed and the young players came through the way we hoped that they would. But then the Seahawks went out and almost beat the Rams. And and some might say should have beat the Rams. A two-point loss at home where with up until there was a minute left in the game, you had a chance to win the football game. And really would have had a chance if the second to last time you had the ball in your hands, Jermaine Effetti hadn't committed a false start penalty, and then DJ Fluker held, taking us out of field goal position. We might be talking about a shocking upset here, which would have which would have been huge for the team, huge for the organization, etc., etc. But can you remember a time when there was more reason for optimism after a loss? I can't. At least not post Pete Carroll being hired. It hurt Sunday night because they almost pulled it off. It was within our grasp. We could have beaten the Rams and we let them off the hook. But once you get past that and you start to look at what they did Sunday, gives you a lot of reason for hope as we move forward in this season. And I think what ended up being the most relevant point of the game is the Seahawks stood up to the Rams, stood toe for toe with them. Physically, they weren't intimidated. Think about the last two years matching up with the Rams. Even when we've beaten them like we did in L.A. last year early in the season. In an ugly game where the Rams' offense hadn't really gotten going yet. Jared Goff wasn't really sure of himself. And even then, uh, potential game-winning touchdown pass to Cooper Cup in the end zone was dropped in the final minutes. Well, that would have been different too. But if you think about the last couple of years with the Seahawks versus the Rams, what do you think of? Aaron Donald, Michael Brockers, Robert Quinn before he left the Rams. Guys chasing Wilson around. Wilson not even being able to set his foot in the ground to think about throwing the football 
without being on his back or in a mad scramble. It was a complete and utter mismatch, our offensive line against our defensive line. And it made getting any kind of rhythm on offense impossible. That was not the case Sunday. That was not the case. Seahawks ran for almost 200 yards as a team. Chris Carson had 100 yards. And I'm going to call it the DJ Fluker effect. Because it's it's really since he returned to the lineup. He missed the first two games. But now that he's back, the Seahawks have established now three straight games. It's not an anomaly anymore. This is a pattern of consistency that we needed to see in order for this team to have any thoughts of contending this year. But in the first two games, the Seahawks ran for a total as a team of 138 yards on the ground. In the last three games since Fluker was inserted into the lineup, and then at that same time, Sweezy took over at left guard for Ethan Posick, 474 yards rushing in the last three games. They've had a 100-yard rusher in each of the last three games, Carson twice and Mike Davis once. As a result, the play-action passing game was wildly successful, resulted in two touchdowns on Sunday. Russell Wilson, over those last three games, with the support of a rushing attack and better pass protection, and those two things go hand-in-hand, Five touchdowns, zero interception. He's been very efficient. This is a different Seahawks team we're talking about. And really, going into the season, we talked about it early. The number one thing that we needed to see this year was the offense needed to get fixed. You fire Tom Cable, you fire Daryl Bevel, you change the scheme, you bring in Brian Schottenheimer to solidify those roles supposedly make Russell more accountable, but fix the offensive line, thereby fixing the offense. Because the defense, we know Carroll can coach defense. We know that Carroll and Schneider are better at drafting on that side of the ball. They can identify defensive backs. We have an outstanding duo at linebacker. And now we can say trio. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And they've always been able to coach up and find defensive linemen. Are there deficiencies? Sure. They need pass rush help, and that's something we'll talk about at another time. But the offense needed to get fixed. We're only five games into this thing. And the running attack is fixed. And the really encouraging thing is to see how they're doing it. They're doing it by being extremely physical up front. They're opening big holes. They're running inside between the tackles. They're doing it with multiple looks. They're doing it with multiple backs. They're sticking with it regardless of the flow of the game. And it's been consistent. We have a three-game sample size now against some really good defensive fronts. Dallas's defensive front, Arizona's with Chandler Jones. And there may not be a better defensive front in the NFC than the LA Rams. And the Seahawks just ran for 200 yards against them. This is something that speaks precisely to what Pete Carroll has said, not just this offseason when it 
when he was addressing how the running game had gone awry the last two years, but from the day he arrived in 2010, this is, this is the style of football that we're going to play. Again, why they got away from it in the first two weeks, I don't know, and it might have cost us a chance to be 4-1 and one right now. But it's fixed now, and that gives us tons of reasons for hope. Some other notes out of the game. I thought Tedrick Thompson in his first start at free safety, taking over for Earl Thomas. He certainly struggled at times, as did Justin Coleman and Shaquille Griffin, but I don't know how much we can really knock them for that. You kind of have to give those guys a pass because they're facing the Rams and all those weapons and all those receivers and Sean McVay, who is such a genius at manipulating the defense with route combinations. Guys weren't running wide open simply because their guys are better than ours. Is Cooper Cup a better athlete than Justin Coleman or Shaq Griffin or Trey Flowers? Of course not. But it's the route combinations. It's where Sean McVay draws your eyes. It's it's how he uses motion to disguise things. And, and that's just something that as long as you play the Rams and they have that guy calling plays and they have those guys throwing and catching the football and running the football and Todd Gurley, you're going to have to deal with it. But I thought what Tedrick Thompson did is he showed up in a couple of big ways that that really bode well for his ability to play that position. And as a free safety, really showed the kind of hitter he is. There was the play on the goal line where we stopped the Rams and it was Tedrick Thompson who was the first to meet Todd Gurley one-on-one in the hole inside on a physical run, keep him out of the end zone. And then there was the play that knocked Brandon Cooks ultimately out of the game as he had to go in uh, into the con- concussion protocol where Thompson hit him as hard as you can hit a guy in the 2018 version of the NFL without being flagged for a penalty. And I was so glad to see that they didn't call him for targeting because even though his helmet and Brandon Cook's helmet did collide, he didn't initiate with the helmet. He initiated with his shoulder. He aimed for the proper target area. It was a vicious hit, but it was legal. And it was, it was encouraging to see that that's still possible. What's frustrating about that play, if you recall, is he forced a fumble on the play. That's how good of a hit it was. But unfortunately, there was a complete bullshit defensive holding call away from the ball that on replay didn't look like it ever happened that nullified the fumble or the Seahawks would have gotten the ball there and it might have changed the game. So good things from Tedrick Thompson. Trey Flowers continues to show on a week-to-week basis that he's not out of his element as a rookie, as a fifth-round rookie, as a fifth-round rookie who's playing a new position. First of all, from day one, you could see the qualities that made him a good safety showing up as a corner. He's already been called an elite run defender, and the stats and, and the analytics back that up. He's an outstanding tackler, better than Shaquille Griffin is maybe as good as Richard Sherman was. And he was probably the best hitting and tackling, run-defending corner in the league. Flowers is that as well. And he's not getting beat and torched and confused as much as you might have feared for a guy with his draft status and having to convert 
to a new position. And so it truly looks like the Seahawks have two young corners that they can build around for the next number of years moving forward. The pass rush is still inconsistent. Uh, nowhere close to dominant, that's for certain. But you could see against the Rams that that for future matchups, that's going to be the key. There were times in the game where the Seahawks were able to generate pressure, and it completely changes the game. Jared Goff is not great at dealing with pressure. He's not great at getting away from it. He's not very athletic or quick. There was one play in particular I'm thinking of. I can't remember exactly what stage of the game it happened in, but he had Cooper Cup running free downfield what would have been an easy touchdown that on on tape would have looked like a blown coverage that's how open cup was but there was enough interior pressure we were in cup's face or, or goff's face he had to get rid of the ball too soon it was an incompletion so that was lacking a little bit but but everything else they Todd Gurley had his moments but they largely contained him he didn't gash us like he did last December. Lots of good things out of that young defense. And here's why here's why it was so important to see that kind of progress. And I talked about it before the game that that the point I was trying to make, I didn't care what the score was. I just wanted to see them carry over the progress, particularly on offense, that they had shown in the Dallas game and the Arizona game and do it against an, an elite opponent. And this is why. Because when we talked at the beginning of the year about the Seahawks being an 8-8, eight 9-7 and eight, nine and seven type team, and, and my hope was at the end of the, end of the year we'd, we'd see the progress and feel like next year they could be more than that, is look at the rest of the NFC. Five weeks into this season, there is only one elite team in the NFC. There is only one other team that looks like they're in control of their division. And the wild card race is wide open, up for grabs, and attainable. And when you look at the Seahawks' schedule now, and we did this last week, games that looked really daunting at the beginning of the year, not so much now. But let's look at the NFC wild card picture. So the Rams are five and zero. They're going to win the NFC West, going away. They're they're they'll be the number one seed in the NFC. The Saints right now are four and one, leading the South. But do any of you really feel like the Saints are an elite team or that they're a team that we would be fearful of matching up against in a playoff game? Maybe by the end of the season they will, but I still think that defense is mediocre at best. And obviously Drew Brees is operating at a high level, just became the all-time leading passer in NFL history, most most, most passing yards in NFL history. They've got weapons and, and a running attack, but... I don't feel like they're an elite team, but they're going to win the South. So those those are probably your number one and number two seeds right now. Then after that, the NFC North, the Bears are leading the North at three and one right now. And even though he's coming off a six touchdown passing game, we got an up close personal look at Mitch Trubisky in week two. Is he a guy that would scare you in the playoffs? That defense would. But would Mitchell Trubisky scare you if you had to face him in the playoffs? Or, or even enough so that you would think that they're going to run the table and win the North going away? I'm not so sure. After that, talk about wide open. Carolina's 3-1, and one, but again, do you feel like they're a scary team? 
They're three and one. The Redskins are leading the NFC East at two and two. And then after that, you have the Packers and Vikings at two, two and one. The Lions, Cowboys, and Eagles are all two and three. Tampa Bay's two and two. Atlanta's one and four. And there are the Seahawks at two and three with three winnable games in front of them before they play the Rams again. So you can see where I'm going with this. If this improvement we've seen on offense, knock on wood, barring any major injuries, continues. It's, it's the type of progress on offense, type of style of offense that you can begin to trust. If you can run the football against good teams, you're going to be in every game. You're going to have a chance to win every game. And you can start to look ahead to teams that aren't as good and, and project which teams you can beat, which teams you can't. And right now, as we sit here five weeks in, you look at the rest of the schedule and you think, okay, at the Rams, that's a tough one. Kansas City late in the year, even though it's at home in crappy weather, Kansas City might be the class of the AFC. By the time the Vikings come here in December, they might have things rolling more than they do now. But there aren't a lot of scary games. There aren't any games you look at the schedule outside of those and think, oh, we don't have a chance. Not if we can run the ball. Not if we can be physical like this. Not if that young defense keeps flying around, controlling the run, picking off passes, which they're doing at a pretty high rate. We'll talk about that in the matchup stats with the Raiders. And we're also going to get some guys back. K.J. Wright will be back after the bye, as will Ed Dixon to help out the offense. So two and three in any other year after five games might be cause for concern. But this year, not at all. Wild card is a legitimate, realistic, attainable goal for the Seahawks. It should be their goal. And what's what's fantastic about that is to think about the possibility that this could be a playoff team while resetting. Knowing again that next year there's a bunch of cap space available and most of our core is young. So let's take a look at the game this weekend. It's in London at Wembley Stadium. The Seahawks are there already. I uh, find it interesting that they flew to London one full day before the Raiders did. They flew out yesterday right after practice, and then as soon as they stepped off the plane, they went out and practiced, trying to assimilate their body clock to the timing that they're going to need to to be ready for Sunday, and they have more time for that assimilation. So I found that interesting. Here's the matchup. Oakland's 1-3. and three. Their defense is terrible. They're 30th in the league. They're giving up 30 points in 400 yards a game, almost seven yards per play. They have no pass rush. Obviously, they traded away their best pass rusher, Khalil Mack, which had ramifications on the field and off the field. It could be affecting that locker room. Dead last in the league with only six sacks. So you have an improving formidable-looking Seahawks offensive line facing that defense. That's a positive. And they don't take the ball away either. They only have three interceptions, last in the league. Matching up against the Seahawks offense, which now is right in the middle of the pack, 17th in the league in points scored, only 27th in yards per game because the passing yards are down, running the football, controlling the clock, 
not throwing for as many yards as they have the last few years because they haven't had to. They're the number eight rushing team in the league, number 25 in passing yards. Now the Seahawks defense that everybody, all the analysts had predicted was going to be a a horrible defense with all of the defections and the releases and the trades and now the injuries. 13th in the league. Giving up 355 yards, just under 23 points a game, 5.7 yards per play. Again, the pass rush lacking a little bit. 22nd in the league with only 10 sacks, but second in the league with nine interceptions. They're taking the ball away. And just for reference, Seahawks have 10 sacks, the best team in the league, best team in the NFL. Pittsburgh Steelers have 19. It's not a huge gap. It's two sacks per game. But it does need to get better. The Oakland offense is number six in the NFL in yards at 411 per game, but they're not cashing in. They're only scoring 21 points per game. That's 22nd in the league. And David Carr, or Derek Carr, excuse me, apologies to his older brother and him, is not playing well. Seven touchdowns, eight picks so far. He's 28th in the league in passer rating. Wilson's 14th by comparison with five touchdowns, two interceptions. What Oakland is doing well on offense is they're hitting some big plays in the passing game and they're running the football. Marshawn Lynch is having a great year. Four yards carry, 331 yards rushing through their first four games. At 32 years old, looks as strong and physical and quick as he did with the Seahawks three years ago. But the Raiders are are kind of a mess. They're kind of a mess. I mean, their one win was an overtime win against Cleveland at home. In that game, uh, Gruden called a play-action pass on first and goal from the from the one-yard line. Um, this is actually... The Cleveland game was two weeks ago that they won in overtime. But last week against the Chargers, they were down 20-3 to at the time. They're on the one-yard line, first and goal, play-action pass, car gets picked. Marshawn Lynch was pissed off. We've seen this movie before, right? Gruden threw Carr under the bus after the game, said it's not the last time I'm going to throw from the one-yard line, but we shouldn't have got picked there. And then he threw the Seahawks under the bus, said it's not like it was the Super Bowl or anything. Gruden also talked at length this week about how much he hates flying and how long flights can mess him up. And a couple of years ago, he went to Europe uh, to watch his son uh, in, a, in, I believe, a powerlifting competition. And um, he got so sick, he had vertigo. He claims he had vertigo for a month after the flight there and the flight back. Um, it's probably not important, but I thought that was interesting. He might not be in a very good mood on Sunday. Um, the game is at 10 a.m., which I like. You know, those London games when they first started doing this 17 years ago, they, um, they'd they be at 5, 6 in the morning. You had to get up at some ungodly hour. Um, but clearly, this is a game that the Seahawks should win. And now, what, what I hope you're all starting to understand is that this season's going to be a journey. And it's it's going to be a journey that that could and hopefully should lead to a playoff spot. But it's going to be a week-by-week, step-by-step journey where every week we're looking at the matchup. 
and it could go either way. Some weeks are going to be easier than others. Some weeks the opponent's going to look formidable and they're going to have to find a way. Other weeks the opponent's going to look it's going to look like the type of game that you want to chalk up as as an easy win. But if there's one thing we know about the Seahawks over the last eight years, it's they often play to the level of their opponents up and down. They get a big lead on someone, they find a way to let them back in. They're never out of a game, with the exception of the Rams game last December. They find a way to stay in games. This is a game that the Seahawks should win comfortably. This is a game the Seahawks should win by two scores if they want to show us that they've taken that step and that it's really taken hold. Take one more step forward after those three games of running the football, being physical, being efficient on offense, flying around on defense, causing turnovers, making plays, stopping teams on third down, getting them off the field. Do that again against a team that you should. A team with a terrible defense a team that's struggling on offense and where there's some possible locker room strife. You have to put your foot on the opponent's throat in a situation like this and go into the bye week at 3-3 three and three feeling really good about yourself. And then after the bye, you go to Detroit, who's playing well. They've been up and down. They beat the Patriots. They got blown out by the Jets and a rookie quarterback, so they're inconsistent as well, but that's a that's a game that you should win. And then you come home and you play the Chargers. They've been inconsistent and up and down as well. It's a reoccurring theme in the NFL this year. The cream rises to the top, and there's not a lot of cream in the NFL this year. But that plays into the Seahawks' hands. So this is a game they should win. And we'll check back in, obviously, next week going into the bye, and we'll recap how the Oakland game went And then we'll kind of take a look at the, not quite the quarter poll. I guess it'd be the, the almost the third of the way through the season and kind of reset and see where some bigger picture things are going into the bye week. And we'll talk about how things shape up for 2019 with some of the things we've seen in these first five weeks. I want to get to the Mariners because Jerry DePoto has, he's, he's put a lot on tape this week. We talk about players putting things on tape. Well, GMs do too. When Sometimes they go weeks without talking. And this week, Jerry's been talking a lot. Doing season wrap-up stuff at a press conference. He did another episode of his, his podcast. And, and Jerry, maybe more than any other general manager in baseball, is very forthcoming about his thoughts and his process. And we can start to take some hints from some of the things he's saying. You know that about a month ago, I called for a total teardown because I was so frustrated with how the season turned and then finished. I've I've come to accept the fact that, well, I've basically come to accept Jerry DePoto's argument that a total teardown isn't the most prudent move, isn't as smart a move now as it was five years ago. You can't do now what the Astros did to rebuild, what the Braves did to rebuild, what the Cubs did to rebuild, because the rules are different now. You don't get draft pick compensation for big free agents that you that you make qualifying offers to. So there aren't as many sandwich picks. The international bonus pool money is weighted towards the bad teams. It's harder to build back up after you tear down. And so when we parse Jerry's words this week, 
here's what I'm taking away from it. And here's some of the things that he's consistently talked about this week. He says that we have to evaluate where we are in the marketplace and where that compares to our competition. And he said, when you take a look at teams that are that are winning 100 games, teams that are in the playoffs, teams that are competing for World Series right now, and consistently throughout the years, what you what you typically see is that their core is in their prime. And that in the American League right now, it's very top-heavy. There are a lot of teams that did tear down and are trying to rebuild that are at the bottom, and that's that's just making it worse because there's more games on Houston's schedule, New York's schedule, Boston's schedule, Cleveland's schedule that are easy prey. So you've got three teams with 100 wins, another one with 97. Can He's basically saying, can we realistically expect to keep up with those teams by staying the course over the next couple of years? And he talks about picking and choosing which of their players are smartest to build around without mentioning names. What I believe he's hinting at and implying is, for example, maybe it's not prudent to bring Nelson Cruz back, even though the fans love him and he's our cleanup hitter. And even at the age of 37, about to be 38, he's as productive as he ever was. Even late in the year, doesn't wear down physically, might be that anomaly, that guy that ages well as a power hitter, doesn't lose his bat speed into his year 40, might be worth the money but maybe not for the position that we're in. And I think it also calls to the fact that there may be some major adjustments to the 25-man roster. There may be some guys uh, in the lineup that are traded. As I look more and more at free agency and what some of the other teams have done, I do think there's an opportunity for the Mariners to get better next year with a few key moves as opposed to wholesale changes. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic is because I believe that if they can stay competitive for the next couple of years, there's a real opportunity in 2020, 2021 to take that next step because not only are you going to lose Felix Hernandez's contract after next year, that's $28 million of payroll space that's freed up. You'll be much closer to shedding Kyle Seeger's payroll as well. But the minor league system that we keep hearing over and over is terrible. And Baseball America had him ranked last in baseball again this year. There are signs that at the lower levels, that the last two drafts have been very fruitful. In in particular, the 2018 draft. And a lot of guys in those top 10 to 15 rounds had outstanding debuts to finish out their rookie season. Logan Gilbert, the first-round draft pick, starting pitcher, obviously didn't pitch, came down with mono. They wanted to control his innings anyway, so we didn't get to see him. But he'll be fresh in the system next year. But Josh Stowers, Cal Raleigh, Joey Gerber, Michael Plassmeyer, Jake Anchia, Keegan McGovern, Nolan Hoffman, those are just a few of the guys in the top 12 rounds that had outstanding debuts in the minor league system as rookies. And so there's a wave of younger guys and there's some bullpen guys from last year's draft that really stand out. There's a wave of guys in the lower level minor leagues that 
two, three years from now, we're going to feel a lot better about it. And that system is going to start to rise in those rankings. And I don't believe Jerry Depoto is going to just willingly start trading those guys away because he's trader Jerry and he wants to make moves. I think there were opportunities, most likely at the trade deadline last year when the Mariners were trying to hang on as it as they could see the Oakland A's coming like a freight train and they could see their season slipping away. He could have traded Kyle Lewis. He could have traded Evan White. He could have traded some of their top-end, mid-level bullpen arms in the minors to add another bat or another starting pitcher. But he chose not to because I, I really do believe that he intends to build up the system at the same time as keeping the major league roster competitive. And so I can't wait for the season to get over, honestly. <laughs> There's been some really good baseball so far in the playoffs and the the division or the uh, league championship series both start tomorrow. Um, but I can't wait for it to, to finish up because I think there's, once again, Jerry DePoto is going to do some really creative things in the offseason. I think um, there will be a couple of moves that surprise us, and, and I want to see what they get done. I want to see what they get done. I still, personally, would consider making a big splash and trading uh, a big piece or two off the 25-man roster in order to get a little bit younger. Um, I would consider, for the right deal, trading James Paxton because he is 30 years old. He finally showed that he can have a mostly healthy year, but even then he missed starts. He has two years of arbitration salary control left. Um, there'd be a market for him, and and they could get a really intriguing return. I would consider that. Depending on what they do with Robbie Cano and how much he p- plays first base, I would shop Ryan Healy, 26-year-old guy that hits... 25 home runs a year and showed signs at the end of last year that he can be a little bit better with his plate discipline. He, uh, and a good clubhouse guy, he would have, um, he would have some value and it would make sense for the Mariners to get value for him with Evan White coming. Evan White started to hit for power at the end of last year, playing in the Arizona Fall League right now, getting off to a great start with the bat. Um, profiled coming out of college as a high average, high on base percentage guy with with a big time glove at first base. And that was backed up by the fact that he was just awarded the minor league gold glove award as the best defensive first baseman in the minors. So with Evan White coming and with other needs on the club, you could trade Ryan Healy, maybe turn him into a, a everyday center fielder or uh, a mid rotation starter. And then I think you got to, f- you got to try to move D Gordon. I don't know where he fits on the team next year, especially if Cano is going to play second base every day. Um, and then I've talked on this podcast about trading Gene Segura. And a couple of weeks ago, I was even expecting that to happen. There are whispers that he's been involved in a couple of not so positive clubhouse issues and um, things involving the manager and just team chemistry. Um, and with his bat, he would obviously be appealing to other clubs. But I was reminded last night listening to another podcast that he has a full no trade clause and he may choose to exercise that. So they, that might make him a little tougher to trade. Um, and I think to trade Gene Segura, you'd have to be bowled over by an offer anyway because there's no other options for shortstop. The Mariners don't have another shortstop in the system that's anywhere close to playing in the major leagues on an everyday basis, and they would have to then go out and figure out a way to acquire one. 
So that's it for Seahawks and Mariners talk this week. But next week with the Seahawks on a bye, I'm going to take some time and, and take a look at the Huskies and the Cougars. It's an interesting two-week stretch for both teams right now who are locked in a battle for the Pac-12 North. Um, the Cougars have been surprisingly good this year. It wasn't expected to be a good season for them. It wasn't even likely expected to be a bowl season, uh, especially after the uh, tragic death of Tyler Holinsky. Um, in January, I think expectations were tempered, but Gardner Minshew as a senior transfer has been so spectacular for the Cougs that he's elevated that entire program. And this not only looks like a bowl team now, but a team that could really make some noise. And meanwhile, the Huskies are seventh in the country, really been playing well the last couple of weeks. They play Oregon this Saturday in Autzen Stadium, Oregon ranked 17th. And then the Cougs are on a bye. And then Oregon turns around and comes up to Pullman the following week and plays the Cougs. So the Pac-12 North picture could be much clearer in about 11 days from now. So we'll spend some time looking at the Huskies, looking at the Cougs next week. And I'm going to ask the question of where does Gardner Minshew fit into the pantheon of great WSU quarterbacks? Because I think he's much higher than many might think. And it's unfortunate that they only get to enjoy him for one season. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you once again for listening to The Dan Cave. Please subscribe if you haven't already through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. If you're using the Anchor app, you can leave me voice messages that I can use in the show. I would love to hear you um, chime in with your thoughts, questions, um, opinions. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Email me at thedancaveshow at gmail.com. We'll be back next week to talk more Seahawks, Mariners, and more on the Dan Cave.